If you'll follow me, please, as I read from God's word in Psalm 24. We'll read all of Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Who may climb the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Such people may seek you and worship in your presence, O God of Jacob. Open up, ancient gates. Open up, ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, invincible in battle. Open up, ancient gates. Open up, ancient doors, and let the King of glory enter. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the King of glory. May God bless the reading of his word. We are doing a series of messages from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 for our Advent series this, week, this year. And uh, the words of that uh, text are that uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week we looked at Wonderful Counselor. This morning we're going to look at Mighty God. But I want to put that into context this morning, and so to do just a bit of introduction before we jump into looking at the phrase Mighty God. And that is that uh, oftentimes uh, the, the context is important. Isaiah 9.6 falls in a, tech, in a part of Isaiah that sometimes has been called the, the Emmanuel portion. From Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1 on through the 12th chapter is focused on a part of history that is significant and it covers four countries and four different individuals. If you want the background, 2 Kings chapter 16 describes it a little bit more extensively, but as you read chapter 7 through 12, you'll find that there's four individuals and four countries that are uh, mentioned. First of all, there's Ahaz, and the words of the text in chapter 7 uh, through 12 are basically uh, a message to Ahaz in the context of a situation that he faced as king of Judah, the two southern tribes. Pekah is the second person, and he was the king or ruler of Israel. And then their third one is Rezin, the king of Aram or Syria. What happened was that Syria and Samaria or Aram joined together to invade the southern two tribes of Judah, where Ahaz was ruling. And Ahaz became panicked, and he decided that he needed some help, 
So he decides that he's going to invite uh, Tiglath-Pileser, who is the head of Assyria, to come in and to work with him to defeat the two uh, that are, he's facing. The reality is, throughout chapter 7 through 12, again and again and again, the word that is given to Ahaz in a variety of ways is, don't panic, don't do this. Turn and trust God. God is the one who will fight for you. He is the mighty God who will provide for you. And so in this context of a mighty God, a mighty warrior who will fight for you, we have the text that we're looking at this morning where we hear the, the title, A Mighty God, uh, uh, that we're going to be considering this morning. What's in a name? We discovered that our kids named our granddaughter Everbloom. Kind of a unique name. Turns out that our daughter decided to name her after the great-great-great-grandmother, who was a Native American, whose native name meant ever-blooming like a lily. And so it has significance. Our, our grandson was named August. That's because my gra uh, grandfather was named August, and his dad's grandfather was named August. And so he picks up that name. Oftentimes, names have significance. And if you look at this text from chapter 7 through chapter 12, four times there are names that are given. In chapter 7, verse 3, uh, we hear about Isaiah's son, Shirher Jashub, which means the remnant shall return. And so the name that he was given uh, to his son was a promise that even though they would be taken into captivity, they would return. Chapter 7, verse 14, the second name, Emmanuel, uh, which means, as you know, God with us. The fact that God would be with them and they did not need to fear Assyria. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, he names his second son, Meher Shalhal Hashbaz, which means quick to the spoil, the prey hastens. In other words, God was going to provide for them. And then we come to chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And again, the name has significance. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 18, you discover that the text itself says that these names of these kids has significance. Verse 18 of chapter 8, Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. And if you go through chapter 7 through chapter 14, and you're used to underlining in your Bible, you'll find many times where Almighty God, the Lord Almighty, is repeated again and again and again. And the whole point of that text is that God is calling the children of Judah to trust in the mighty God rather than to put their trust in an alliance with uh, the Assyrians. Things were morally collapsing and politically and spiritually in the nation of Judah, as well as in the nation of Israel. 
but they, God is making it very clear to them that he wants them to trust him and to trust him alone. And he says, be careful, keep calm, don't lose heart. So it's in that context then that we look at the phrase that we're considering this morning, the almighty God. What is the meaning of the term mighty God? Well, there are two phrases. The first is L. Uh, L is a very ancient Semitic term. It's uh, most widely distributed among uh, Semitic peoples, and it speaks almost always of deity. Nearly all of the Old Testament scriptures where we find the term El, it's accompanied by some sort of a preface or another word which is descriptive. It's used as a qualifying word. Uh, for example, El Shaddai, El Emmanuel is, is the, another one of those. El Elan. So you find that the concept of God is tied with some other descriptor. And in this text, the descriptor is gibor, which is mighty. It's used the bulk of the times of its 300 uses in the Old Testament to refer to men of battle, mighty men of valor, such as David had. It connotes strength, power, and the vitality of a successful warrior. So this is the major focus. God Almighty, the mighty God, the warrior God. And it's repeated several times as it, in a Psalm to speak of God. Psalm chapter 80, verses 7 and uh, 14 and 19 says, Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. Psalm 106, 5 through 9. The term refers to the miracles that God uh, performed to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. He saved them, it says, for his namesake, to make his mighty power known. Psalm 24, the text that was read for us this morning, says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And so the text in the Old Testament makes it abundantly clear that when we use El Gibor, it is speaking of God as the strong one, the mighty one, the mighty warrior who goes to battle to protect his people. In the Old Testament context, it's the people of Judah who are afraid of what's happening uh, in the political situation in which they find themselves. And so the text is saying that the one who is to come, this child who is to be born, whose government will be on his shoulders, will be called Mighty God. We believe that this one who, come, who is to come is Jesus, the baby who was born in Bethlehem. A baby? God? Mighty God? The mighty warrior? It's kind of hard to put our minds around that. When we think of mighty God, we think of it in the context of a miracle and a mystery. 
we sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. It's so big, so tremendous, that we just can't get our arms around it. I've been reading a book uh, on Martin Luther and Erasmus, and the book talks a lot about some of the challenges, uh, debates within the, within the church over the periods of history. And one of the interesting things is so much of the debate is around this very mystery, the mystery of how can we have a human being being God? John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we see His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. John chapter 3, verse 13, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, He says that He came down from heaven. And in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was martyred, he saw a vision as he was dying, and he saw Jesus standing as the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about the fact that he is the bread come down from heaven. God came near, says Max Licato. It all happened in a moment, at a most remarkable moment on that first Christmas. A spectacular thing occurred. God became man. While the creatures of the earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit now becomes pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustained the world, sustained the world with a word, chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God, as a fetus, holiness, sleeping in a womb, the creator of life, being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. God had come near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, even though he is the almighty God, the great warrior, but as one who first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleeping carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla, were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gift. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diapers. Miracle? Mystery? How can we wrap our heads around something like that? The universe watched in wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him and had this, the synagogue leaders in Nazareth known who he was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a child down the street had a crush on him. He could be that his knees were bony. One thing for sure, 
He was, while completely divine, completely human. But while he was completely human, he was also completely divine. That's what the miracle and the mystery is that we celebrate at Christmas. That's what mighty God came to be, a baby born in Bethlehem. That baby is the all-powerful creator. In John 1, 1 through 4, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say that all things were created by him and without him. There is nothing created that has been created. As you go on in Colossians, it talks about the fact that he is the one who has created all things, and by him all things hold together. During his life, Jesus showed himself to be the strong, the powerful, the almighty over the physical world. He stilled the storm caused a bunch of fish to collect for his disciples' fishing nets. He turned water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish to feed the multitudes. He walked on the water. John, at the end of his, of his uh, 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 gospel, says many other miracles he did, but there's too many to record. And then he goes on to see, these were written that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. We have to stop for a moment to think about this idea of son of God, son of man, which is used oftentimes to speak of Jesus. It's not like he was born of man or that he was... uh, It's used in a way that perhaps we use today when somebody says of me, yeah, you are just like Marvin. You are the son of Marvin, all right, because my characteristics reflect the characteristics of my father. And throughout the Gospels, when it uses Son of Man, Son of God, what it's trying to communicate to us is that Jesus is has all of the characteristics of his Father, the Heavenly Father. In his teachings, Jesus made it quite clear that he saw himself as God incarnate. Bread come down from heaven. I and the Father are one. And perhaps the climax of his teaching came in John chapter 8, where He interacts with the Pharisees and the scribes, and they are challenging him. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jewish people fully understood when he used that phrase, I am, that he was reflecting back to Moses' call when God says to Moses, when Moses asked, who shall I say called me? Tell them, I am called you. And Jesus, when he says this, I am, they picked up stones to stone him and to kill him because they believed this was blasphemy because he was making himself God. As God, he has the power to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 10, we have that story of how some friends brought a lame man to Jesus and couldn't get to him, and so they dropped him down through through the roof. They uncovered the roof and dropped him down. And as Jesus saw their faith, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd went wild. What? Who can forgive sins? And he says, in order that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'll say to this guy, rise and walk. And so he raises this man. There is no doubt from Jesus' own self-presentation 
and what the Gospels and the people who followed him understood, that they saw him as God. There's that famous quotation from C.S. Lewis where he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, God Almighty, Almighty God, if the baby in the manger is God Almighty, then what? Then what? How do we respond? There's some debate about who said this first, but Mark Twain definitely said it at one point. Here's the statement. In the beginning, God made man in his image. And ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. In other words, we try to create God in our own image. We try to pull God Almighty into a term that we feel better about, into a place that we feel we've got some handles on him, and that we can actually contain him in some sort of a corral. Because... If we can diminish God, as J.B. Phillips said in his book, your God is too small. If we can diminish him, then we can ignore what he requires of us. We can avoid facing Jesus and keep him at a safe distance. But see, when we come face to face with the reality that Jesus is Almighty God, He's not only worthy of our worship, He's worthy of the surrender of our lives, and He's worthy of our worship and of our surrender. Because remember, this child turned Savior King was born to rule, and that rule includes our lives. Let's trust that we never want it to be said of us, as Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Why do you give me a shout-out and then live your lives the way you want to live your life? Why do you give me the title but never surrender your life to me? By, leaving, by believing him, we need to save him first place in our lives. We might look someplace else for deliverance, but he is the mighty God who is able to save us. He is the mighty God whose power is given for us. He is the mighty God who says 
that his power and his grace are sufficient for us. His power is for us, this strong and mighty God, who through faith we are shielded and kept by God's power until the coming of our salvation is revealed at the last time, Peter says. And then he goes on and he says, His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Ephesians, Paul writes, His incomparably great power for us who believe, the mighty power that is working within us. There's the story by Robert Louis Stevenson about a passenger who was on a ship in the midst of a severe storm and in imminent danger of sinking. And the passengers were whispering, are we going to go down? Are we sinking? Are we safe? One passenger says, I've got to find out. So he made his way to the top side across the heaving deck to the pilot house where the pilot of the ship had his hands firmly on the wheel. The pilot turned and he saw the fear in the passenger's face and he just smiled at him, not even speaking a word. On arriving below, once the fearful, pastor, uh, the fearful passenger explained, we're going to be all right. I've seen the face of the pilot and he smiled at me. What we need to do when we are crippled by fear caused by difficult circumstances, looking at the stormy waves, is to turn our gaze and look into the serene face of Jesus, our mighty God. The one who is always mighty to save. We need to see the reassuring smile of our Savior who alone is able to calm the storm simply by speaking those words into our hearts. Jesus is mighty to save. And that's what the theme of the Old Testament words are when it's referred to God. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Nothing is too hard for God. Jeremiah 32.17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, You've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arms. Nothing is too hard for you. I don't know what your circumstance in life is today, but I do know that Jesus came to offer himself as mighty God to give to you the power that you need to overcome any difficult circumstance. We sing the old hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. But the interesting thing is, the New Testament tells us that God's power for us is made present in weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure, this treasure of all that God has given to us, in jars of clay, to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from ourselves. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When we humble ourselves, acknowledge our own weaknesses, 
And we turn to the Savior who says, I am Almighty God, the strong one, the mighty warrior, and I love you and I will care for you. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of the Incarnation. Almighty God with us.